Greetings, dear saints of God. We are going to continue our journey in the book of Revelation. It's been quite a while since we've looked at the book of Revelation. And I want to remind you that the book of Revelation was written to a people who were going through persecution, terrible persecution, to show them that God was there, that he cares, that he was aware, that he was active, and to teach them how to live in the midst of it. And we've been looking at the city of Pergamum and John's letter to these dear people. And today we're going to be looking at Revelation 2, 14 through 16. And I want to review just a little bit. Let's look at Revelation 2, 12 and 13, which we looked at last time, and I'll read that. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, first of all, we saw that there was a revelation of Jesus, and throughout all of these letters, there is a revelation of Jesus, and he is shown in a little different way each time. But in this one, he's shown as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. And this is to let us know that he is aware of the spiritual battle and how the spiritual battle in the heavenly realms affects what's going on uh, on earth. And he is aware of that and he is able to conquer, that he is watching and he is able to conquer. There's a great old English uh, Christmas hymn, and believe it or not, it says in it, uh, he always shakes his sword before he strikes. And I really like that idea because the Lord is watching. He's waiting, and he will uh, come forth. Secondly, we looked at the things that Jesus knew, the things that he knows. And first of all, he knows where you dwell or where you stay. And, and to them, he wrote, listen, I know that you uh, dwell uh, the, pla- where the, the place where Satan has given his authority. You dwell where Satan's throne is. Now, he didn't mean that, that Satan's throne was actually there because in the book of Revelation, um, the throne has to do with authority. And you see Satan giving his throne to the two beasts, the, pe- the beast that rises out of the sea, which is, which is the political, economic, military uh, world system, and the beast that rises up out of the land, which is the religious system. Uh, and you can read about those, and we'll get to those in detail. Um, but the, here you have the two things that Satan will always give his authority to, politics and religion keep that in mind. He gives his authority to politics and religion, and politics and religion will always be influenced by Satan to come against the kingdom of God and to come against the people of God. Uh, That may be hard to believe, but this is a time where Christians have to be really wise and look past their emotions and look to the biblical principles of how Satan works and to have a biblical perspective uh, and a biblical worldview. And and God uh, was saying through 
John uh, to the people of Pergamum that he understood that Satan's authority had been given to the religious system and to the political system where they were living and that it was coming against them to the point that uh, Antipas, and we don't know a lot about him, uh, but we know that he was a faithful witness uh, that he was put to death. And the, the, the political system and the religious system, and we'll get to this in great detail uh, in, in the next couple of, uh, uh, maybe about the th- maybe three sessions from here, but the political system and the religious system can never really be a friend uh, of the kingdom of God, of the church, and of God's people. They may uh, pretend to be friends, but it will always be to get something out of uh, the church, out of the kingdom of God, out of the people of God. Uh, the second thing that Jesus knew, besides where they dwell, dwelt in their circumstances, was that they held fast to his name. And now, Jesus is the epitome of God's true name, which is Yahweh. And that, as you know, literally means, uh, I am with you always to get it done. I am with you always to get it done. And they held on to that, that in the midst of their terrible persecution, they knew that Jesus was with them to get it done, uh, to, to help them move through this terrible time. And the second thing, the third thing they knew is they knew that uh, he knew that they did not deny his faith, which is very interesting that it's worded that way. Because the idea is that our faith really belongs to Jesus because he is the author and he is the perfecter of our faith. So Jesus knew these three things. He knew how terrible the battle was given the circumstances that they were in. He knew that they held fast to his name and they knew that he did not deny. They did not deny his faith. And he is the one in the midst of this with a double-edged sword. So that's where we've gone so far. And uh, we're going to continue on with verses 14 and 15. And before we do that, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now, part two of this series of of sessions on Pergamum, in which there'll be three of them, there'll be one more next month, Uh, The title is, Have You Felt His Sword? Because the double-edged sword is mentioned twice here. Uh, In the first part, what we saw last time, it is mentioned as a sword that is used against the enemies of God. Here it is used in a quite different manner. And so let me read uh, uh, to you and for you uh, verses 14 and 15. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If if not, I will come to you soon and wage war against them with the sword of my mouth." 
Now, here we have two things that we need to take note of. The first thing is the not-so-good Jesus sees, and the second thing is a warning that he gives. Now, the the not-so-good Jesus sees, and let me read uh, verse 14 again and 15. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now, these two things uh, that he saw, that he had a problem with, that Jesus held against them, the first one is that people held to the teachings of, of Balaam. Now, this is a really amazing reference, and this could take a whole session just looking at it. But I'll allow you to, I'll give you some information that you can read on your own. And uh, Balaam is mentioned uh, mostly in Numbers 22 through 24. And he was a powerful diviner who had the ability to uh, bless and to curse. And, and it's, it's, it's indicated, as you read Scripture, that he was well-known and he was very powerful. Now, Balak was the king of the Moabites, and Balak hired him to curse Israel. Now, now if you read about Balaam, um, he actually inquired of the Lord, and he had a divine encounter with the Lord. And because of that, the Lord prevented him from cursing Israel, and instead he blessed Israel. It's really an amazing story, and again, it's Numbers 22 through 24. He had an incredible encounter with the living God. Now listen to Numbers 24, 1 through 3. When Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord, Yahweh, to bless Israel, he did not go, as at other times, to look for omens, but he set his face toward the wilderness. Isn't that amazing? God so impacted his life that he gave um, up uh, uh, looking for omens and he set, I love this phrase, set his face toward the wilderness. That that is a a term in, in Hebrew that indicates that he went to seek God because the wilderness, as you know, is always a place where people went to seek God. Now in verse two, and Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe And the Spirit of God came upon him. Wow, amazing. And he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose whose eye is opened. Isn't that amazing? And you can read the rest of it. But what I want you to see uh, is that he had an amazing encounter with God, with, with Yahweh, with the Lord God. And he was then given an amazing prophecy about the nation of Israel, But the problem happens is that his heart was never fully devoted to the Lord. And after this, it seems like his heart returned to his old ways because sometime later, he devised a plan to have the Moabite women seduce the Israelite men. And and that's really what Revelation is um, referring to. And because of this in Numbers 31... Verse 8, we learn that he is killed with the sword. And the whole idea here is, if you think about this, it has to do uh, with having your heart 
that once was turned away, uh, turned toward God, turn away to God because you go back to your old influences. Isn't that interesting? And that's one of the warnings here. Your heart is toward God. You've had an encounter with God. Uh, your eyes are opened. You see things. But because you never com- uh, wholly commit your heart to God, the old influence in your life come back and turn you away from God. That's one lesson that we can learn from this. And we have to be really careful, don't we, that this doesn't happen because it can happen so easily, especially, um, and I think what happened with Balaam, he went back to his culture, he went back um, to living under the authority of King Balak, and those influences overcame uh, the, uh, the experience he had with God and even the faith that he had in God. The second thing is it talks about food sacrificed to idols, and we don't see this in the account of the old in the Old Testament that this was happening, but we see that that the, that John and that Jesus mentioned this, and so we know that's what's happened. Now, this is really important because the idea here is that there are spiritual forces within the culture that if we participate in those things those spiritual forces will affect us. Now, food sacrificed to idols was a big deal in the Old Testament, and it's mentioned a few times in the book of Revelation. But let me read Paul's teaching on this in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, 18 through 21, so you can get an idea of why this was so serious. Consider the people of Israel... Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? Why do what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Now, this may seem really strange to us, but what Paul was saying, and it is so true if you've listened to some of my teachings on the heavenly realms, is that behind the idols, there are always demons. Now, the idols back then were, were really evident in, in that they were made of stone and they were made of uh, uh, metal and, and they were made of artistic works. And, and so they were really evident. You could see them. The idols today are much more subtle. The idols today are really ideas and concepts and ways of thinking. And what the Bible teaches is that whenever there's an idol, there's a spiritual force, there's a demon behind the idol trying to influence the people. And when we participate in whatever that idol is, that spiritual force, that demonic force influences us. And that is the trap of the evil one. And it's important that we be aware of the influences of the spiritual realm on our lives through the practices of our culture. Now keep that in mind. Be aware of the influence of the spiritual realm on our lives 
through the practices of our culture. And again, in, in our society, it's, it's how we think. It's ideals, it's ideals, uh, ideas, ideals. It's those types of things. It's a way of thinking, it's a mindset. That is the idolatry of the modern man. And we'll go into this in much greater detail in a, in a future episode. To be part of our culture in such a way that our hearts and attitudes, emotions, and practices are affected by the world system. That's the warning here. And the world system uh, in, in Revelation is called Babylon. And, and it has to do with the art in- is industry, the media, it has to do with, with economics, it has to do with politics, uh, it has to do with military. All of those things make up what the Bible describes as the cosmos or the world order or the world system. And let me read uh, from Revelation 18, which we'll get to, at, uh, you know, obviously, but listen to this very carefully. It's Revelation 18, 1 through 4, because you're going to see here what will happen to this world order, this world system, and it is called Babylon. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. And what I want you to see there. When, when it talks about uh, sexual immorality, yes, there is real sexual immorality, but it is a euphemism to talk about idolatry that, that the Lord sees when we give our heart to anything but Him, uh, and when we give our heart over to idolatry, it, 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 He considers that sexual immorality. And so when you give your heart over to the culture instead of to the Lord, Uh, That's how he views things, and it's really significant that we understand that. And that's the first warning, Uh, and that's what was happening uh, to the Church of Pergamum. They were being affected by their culture, and they didn't see that the things that they were participating in, in their culture, that those things were influencing them in such a way that they were turning away from the Lord, and they were letting that influence in their lives happen. And that's the first warning. And the second warning has to do with some of them were holding to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now, this has been mentioned before, and we looked at it, and it was prevalent um, throughout the history of the church. The Nicolaitans were a group of Christians who 
who claim to believe in the Lord and claim to want to participate in the body of Christ, uh, but this is what they believed. Uh, they believed that the church needed to fit into the culture. Uh, they believed that the culture needed to feel comfortable in the church. And that the church, uh, what you would call it today, is that the church needed to be open and affirming. Isn't that interesting? And it's the trap of the evil one, and it has to do with compromise. The first warning has to do with idolatry, and the second one has to do with compromise. And the church more and more, because of the culture, and because of what, of the, what the culture believes, the church more and more uh, is going to try to be forced, the, the the, the world system, the political system, the religious system is going to force the church, try and force the church to compromise. You see that happening in Canada right now and in some of the laws that are being written uh, that if uh, Christians come against the, the transgender uh, um, ideas uh, that they, they pastors can actually be arrested uh, if they preach against that. that that's, you can look it up. That's a law that's, that's taking place in Canada right now. And you're going to see that happen more and more. And then this is the warning. Uh, the warning is this. Uh, first of all, we saw the two things that Jesus is upset about, that he has against them. Uh, the first one had to do with idolatry. The second one had to do with compromise. And, and these happen in very, very subtle ways. And now he gives the warning, and that's this. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against, and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Isn't that interesting? In the first part of this, we saw that the sword had to do uh, with, with the enemy and that God has a double-edged sword and he's going to use it. There's going to be a judgment. There's going to be a reckoning in all that we see that is evil and all that we, we see that is harming the people of God uh, and harming the kingdom of God. There's going to be a reckoning and God's going to send his son on, on a white horse with a double-edged sword. But this warning, this sword, uh, has to do uh, with how God uses the sword, how Jesus uses the sword against his own people. Isn't that interesting? You see, the call is to repent. And repentance is always a choice that God offers. But if we don't repent, that what happens is that he comes and he fights against us with his sword. And the title of this this podcast today is Have You Felt His Sword? Because, see, the Lord is faithful. When we're caught up in idolatry, when we're caught up in compromise, He gives us chances to repent. But sometimes what happens is that we are so deceived, um, we are so addicted to our idolatry, or so deceived by our compromise that we don't see it. And so God, in his faithfulness, comes with his sword. And the bite of that sword is terrible. The bite of that sword is painful. The bite of that sword uh, is, is, is not something that we want to experience. And I've experienced, and I'm telling you, it's, it's terrible. Listen, here's the bite of the sword. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. 
For the word of the God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of whom we must give account. Oh, that, that is a frightening verse, especially if you've experienced it. And the idea here is that God sees all things, and we are all naked before him. Our thoughts, our desires, our deceptions, um, our attitudes, everything. And when, when we don't repent, what God does is he sends his sword. And he gets right in there, and he cuts things open uh, so that the thoughts and our emotions can be laid bare before him. He does this in his faithfulness. And let me show you his faithfulness and how um, it, it works and the purpose, uh, because the purpose of the sword is to bring us to repentance when we don't choose repentance. And that's how God uh, is so faithful with his children. Let me read Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Come, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up. <clears throat> Excuse me. That we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. And the first call here is a call to return. And that really is the Lord's desire, that we turn back to him, uh, that we repent. And, and it says these things happen. He has torn us, he has struck us down. And that is the bite of the sword. And it does bring emotional and spiritual and sometimes even physical pain. But he does this to heal us and to bind us up. And that is the mercy of the Lord. Uh, in his mercy, he brings the sword against us. But he does it to heal us and to bind us up. And then, after he heals us and, <clears throat> excuse me, and binds us up, he revives us. And that has to do with his grace. Uh, the Lord, in the Lord's mercy... Uh, he heals us and binds us up, and in his grace, he, revises, he, he revives us. And then, not only does he revive us, bring us to life, but he raises us up. And of course, it's on the third day, and this has to do with the resurrection. We can live then in resurrection power. He brings the sword to cut away everything in our mind and our emotions that is not pleasing to him, and it's painful, okay? It, we feel the bite of it. Uh, we are torn. We are struck down. But after that process, he begins to heal us and to bind up our wounds, to revise us, and to raise us up because so we can live in resurrection power. And the whole point is, is that we might live before him. 
that we might experience his presence in a new way. And that's the Lord's goal, isn't it? The Lord wants communion. He wants fellowship. He wants nothing in our lives to be an idol or to be a compromise so that that gets in the way of our relationship with him. And sometimes it takes a while for us to see the subtleties of our, uh, of our idols and the deception of our compromises. But the Lord is faithful. And then the, there's a call here. Let us know. Let us press on to know. And that's what God wants us to do as we live before him that we might know him. And, and Paul uh, wrote uh, to the Ephesians, I pray that the Lord would give you, that God would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you might know him better. And that's what God does when we begin uh, to go through repentance and we begin to, <clears throat> to walk uh, in resurrection power and we, we begin to press on to know the Lord, then what happens? It says he will come to us. Uh, we experience his presence. And how does he come to us? As the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. And those are real. Uh, we could spend a lot of time on that. But they are blessings. The blessings of revival. The blessings of his presence. Uh, and all of those things. So the question is, have you felt his sword? And God wants to deal uh, with not only our idolatry, how the world system has affected our hearts, our way of thinking, so that we don't have a biblical worldview. He wants to show us where our compromises are. And he wants us to repent from those things. And, to, and, and he brings the sword uh, so he can divine our, our thoughts and our emotions and show us where we have been affected. And then he brings his revival into our lives so that we can walk with him in a new way. And that is the message uh, of this part of, of the letter to Pergamum. And then next time we will look at the promises and the blessings that he now gives to that church. And they're the same promises and blessings that he desires to give to us. So until then, may the Lord bless you and keep you, and may he cause his face to shine on you. I'm praying for all of you who listen to this, uh, that the truths of this, this wonderful uh, message will touch your hearts uh, and enliven uh, your walk. Amen.